Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, we will be talking to a woman who I am so personally blown away by and someone that everyone needs to keep on their radar because she's already accomplished so, so much at such a young age. Her name is Shara Senderoff, and she is the president of a music and technology investment group called Raised in Space Enterprises. Shara has been named as one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. Senderoff has partnered with industry giants Zach Katz and Scooter Braun, and their company is on a mission to raise the value of music through investing in the next generation of transformational tech companies. Shara also founded digital marketing management and innovation engine Something Gold, where she has spent years managing music artists, songwriters, and producers, and advising C-level execs, global brands, and startups in emerging technology, creative strategy, and innovation. Some of her clients have included Artist Partner Group, Atlantic Records, BMG, Spotify, Charlie Puth, Katy Perry, Management 360, Wonderman, L'Oreal, and more. I am equally excited to introduce our co-host today, Asia Grammer. Asia is a Los Angeles-based pop and R&B songwriter and women's rights advocate. She has shared the stage with artists such as Rachel Platten, Bruno Mars, Colby Calais, and many others. Most recently, she came off the road with Selena Gomez, doing appearances such as Saturday Night Live, Jimmy Fallon, and Ellen. Currently, she writes songs for commercials, TV, film, and major label recording artists. She's heading into her seventh year as an ambassador and teacher for Rock Camp for Girls, an all-female-run social justice organization that empowers young girls through music education. And here's a little fun fact. Asia is the inspiration behind many of Andy Grammer's hit songs since she is his longtime love and wife. Songs like Honey, I'm Good and Fresh Eyes are written all about her. Hi, Asia. Hi, Valerie. How are you? I'm wonderful. Good. Another fun fact about you is that you and I are related. We are. We are cousins. We are cousins. So I have a question for you. Okay. Are you my second cousin or my first cousin once removed? My dad and you are first cousins. Correct. So that would, I think that makes us first cousins once removed. First cousins once removed? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody needs to email us and tell us how this works. <laughs> We're related. Well, I am so excited to have you here as my co-host. Thank you. You know, I saw a lot of similarities between you and Shara, who we are interviewing, because um, she is a powerhouse that has like accomplished so much. She's doing so many different things, and you um, are similar to her in that way. You've got so much going on, and I love, love women like that. Well, thank you. I um. I feel like it originally comes out of necessity because you don't have other people to do all the things you need. So you just kind of figure it out along the way. And it seems like that's that's kind of her story as well. It is. And you're open to all aspects of your craft, not just one part of it. You love the music side. You love the business side. You love to advocate. You love to help people. And so that's what feels so special to me and why there's a connection. Yeah, I think you. the goal is to be a well-rounded human being. So I hope I'm doing that. All right, so Asia, I want to talk for a minute about your music video. You have recently released a song called For You and a music video to go with it, and it is incredibly powerful. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I I wrote the song The Evening of the Testimony by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. I was really um, moved by her courage and the fact that she had to get up there and share her story in front of millions of people and was receiving such cold 
energy back. And I just felt like it was really powerful that she did it anyways, because she said that she felt like she needed to do it for other women. So I was really moved by that. And I went to sleep and I was like tossing and turning. And I finally got up and um, at like one in the morning and just went to the piano and wrote it in 30 minutes. And then I was like, okay, I think I could sleep now and went back to bed. So it wasn't like a pop songwriting session or anything like that. It was just like, it was for me because I was upset about it. And then what happened was an outpouring of support from all the women in everywhere in the world um, posting on their social medias about, you know, we've kind of been in this Me Too movement for a while now, but there was just like a lot of women going like, you know, this isn't as crazy as it sounds. Let me tell you about my thing that happened to me. Right. And I just felt like it, we were like, we were a tight-knit community. Me and all these women that I didn't even know, we were like a team. And I just felt like that was so cool. And so that's what this was about. Beautiful. Well, everyone listening has to see your music video. So if you just go and Google Asia Grammar for you, it will come up. It's an incredibly powerful music video. Thank you. It's a must watch. We put a post out asking if women wanted to come and put a face to this. And we had a, a trauma counselor on set. And it was like the most, it was literally like so healing. Everyone was crying for the entire day. I can imagine. And by the end, everyone was like, we all had exchanged numbers and it was, it was family. Awesome. Well, Shara's going to be here in a few minutes. Um, so tell me, what are you hoping to kind of learn from today's conversation? I love hearing about badass women that are in the business side. Um, I think it takes a lot of creativity to be in the business side. It's just so cool when you see women out there going like, yeah, get out of my way. Like, I'm doing this shit. Get out of my way. I can't wait for you to meet her because I was so impressed with her. So she'll be here in a few minutes. So I'm excited to get started. Me too. Hi, Shara. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you for being here today. Of course. I met you a few weeks ago at your office. Um, we have a mutual connection. Um, Zach Katz is somebody very, very special to me because he introduced me to my husband, and I think my kids exist because of him today, and I'm so excited to learn so much about your journey today. Great. Well, I'm happy to be here. So before we get started, I want you to tell me just very top line about Raised in Space. We're going to go in more detail later, but tell me um, about what this company stands for and what your mission is. So Raised in Space is focused on raising the next generation of technology companies that are born out of an industry that we believe, frankly, doesn't exist, which is music technology. There are various players across journalism and events that talk about music and tech, but you can't point to a single music tech company that has scaled considerably out of the relationship between the two coming together on day one. We can look at Spotify, they're a technology company that has utilized music. We can look at music companies across the board and they have for various reasons a fear of technology. So Race and Space has come together to focus on being the first entity that sits agnostically between all the record labels, all the publishers, all the managers to create and birth and frankly raise new companies in the music and technology industry. So I would love to know why like a Spotify, for example, mm -hmm. wouldn't qualify as a music tech company. The interesting thing about music tech is that if you look at the music industry, they, unfortunately for them, have been on the wrong side of history numerous times. Where Spotify is today is they're in battles with songwriters, they're in battles with the record labels. It's been a constant pushing down of walls that Spotify, when they entered as a technology company, in order to really partner with the music industry, they had to force their way into the music industry. On day one, the music business didn't say, welcome, little tech company. What can we do to come together to mutually benefit one another? The music business said, hey, tech, we don't need you. We have the CD. What do we need streaming for? So it's more about the industries coming together on day one to find a mutually beneficial relationship so that years down the line, one is not battling the other for for rights, for communication, for collaboration, whatever it may be for the two to work together. That's where, as Raised in Space, we see an opportunity to be able to reset the conversation with the music business and technology founders who, who frankly look at the music industry as an untouchable, almost do not enter type of type of place where the music industry hasn't been open arms to what technology has to offer. The conversation has certainly been progressed over the last few years, but there needs to be a 
mutually beneficial opportunity. And that has to start with the next generation of technology companies. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I'm I'm a songwriter. So I have seen a lot of the um, backlash that Spotify in particular is getting right now. You guys are trying to find a new way to do it because I agree the way that it's happening now is broken. And I think uh, artists and musicians keep trying to find a way to fix it and fix it and fix it. But it might just be that it doesn't work. To to state it simply, Spotify is a business that right. has to derive revenue to be able to survive. And right. they're looking at it as we can't we can't continue if we just give you all the things you're asking for. Exactly. Right. But if this was architected in a different way from day one, mm-hmm. would we be in the same place? And that's our question and thesis around raised in space, which is how do we do it differently the next time around? Mm-hmm. And the next time around is now. All right, so Shara, I want to talk a little bit about your partnership between Zach and Scooter. So you um, have partnered with two kind of industry giants, and you are the president of this company. So talk to me about the relationship between the three of you. So, and we have a we have another entity that's a partner of the company, which is Ripple also. But as it related to Zach and Scooter, for me as a female executive in the business, I always look to work with people who are respectful and cultivating of entrepreneurship and are open to big ideas and and innovation. And frankly, Zach and I connected the minute we met, which was a couple years ago, kind of on the basis of people and how we view, how we interact with people, how we view relationships. And we just speak a similar language and, and we know what's important to us. And so we're sort of connected souls that will probably end up working together forever. And Scooter was an incredible rounding out of of that partnership because he too is a raiser of talent of i mean course. his relationships obviously with his artists and what he's done is prolific and so it just was the perfect culmination of what we wanted to do so you all kind of bring something different to the table absolutely does everybody um, play well and stay in their lane or does it kind of uh, cross over a bit you know, I think when you have a great team, you don't have to have lanes. And I think that you're able to communicate without communicating. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of this collaboration is we have only been in existence for four months. We launched Raisin Space in January. And the speed with which we've been able to move out of everyone's respect for each other and, and communication has allowed us progr- to progress as fast as as humanly possible with a venture like this, and I attribute that to my partners. And tell me why the name Raisin Space. So Raisin Space is actually named after the individuals that we believe are not held down by the gravitational pull of old thinking and of old industry. And I think that in order to create something new, no matter what it's in and and what size it's in, you have to be able to think so far out of this world, for lack of a better term. And frankly, I feel like I've, I've grown up as somebody who was looked at as at times, like I had 10 heads with an idea I was pitching or that I was speaking another language and I just never felt like I was from here. Right. And I think that that idea of being raised somewhere else. Or thinking differently or thinking in a, or in thinking a, in a space that's different. You know when you meet somebody who was raised in space. Right. And that's a phrase that doesn't need much explanation to know who it's about. And it was important for us to name it after the people we're investing in because that's who is inspiring us and that's who we aim to raise and guide. I've sort of always looked at my career as it's not about me and it's about the people that I work with because I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for everyone who has contributed to my life and my path. And I think that's what was so important to me with this name was that it spoke to the people who are going to make this what it is. Beautiful. So tell me, where are you from? I was born in Philly. I am Philly by blood. It genetically is a huge part of who I am. And you mentioned that you are a massive Philly sports fan, which you believe has led you to most of your success. Explain that. I think that what drives us as humans is what we love and what we're passionate about. And I think that for better or for worse, the reputation of a Philadelphia fan is that we are incredibly, incredibly passionate. And that is what I have never lost throughout my career and I believe has ultimately led me to every the next level of everything I've done is just having such immense passion that I can find something I love in everything. And that is what continues to drive me. It's interesting because I've done so many things that have been led seemingly by creativity but I think that a lot of times what I actually focus on is is numbers and is business model and is hard facts around why we're doing what we're doing and I think that 
as much as creative seemingly has led, when I look back on a lot of the things that I've done, they've been driven by numbers. And I think that a lot of times people don't have both. Mm-hmm. And that in just kind of a, a review of my life, I think in pulling things out, that's actually what has helped me accomplish a, a lot of what I've accomplished. Tell me any um, sparks from your childhood that were clues to who you are today. One interesting thing that I've started to talk about recently that I always remember and I always tell the story, but it started to become more meaningful to me as I've gotten older is that when I was six, I was a really talented painter designer, you know, for a six year old. I was painting in my day camp. And one day my counselors came to me and said, oh, we we love all the paintings you've been doing in arts and crafts. And we have this opportunity for you to paint the mural behind the camp play. And you'll get to every day at lunch, you'll get to come with a counselor to this behind the scenes art room and you'll get to paint this mural every day. And I was like, wow, I'm so special. This is so cool. And as I went back there and I worked so hard on it, it was like my living and breathing effort to be something was to paint this mural as beautifully as I could. One day the counselor came into me and said, don't worry, you're going to get credit for this. And as soon as they said, I'm going to get credit for it, I thought to myself, wow, I'm getting like a trophy or a gift certificate or you didn't something. Know, you didn't know what credit <laughs> I didn't meant. know what credit was. I thought that it was something physical. Right. And there's a bit of irony that I have talked about more recently around that story, which is that as I've gotten older, it's actually been credit that has been more important to me than any material item. Mm-hmm. And that is is the most important thing. And I think one of the things that I faced within my growth as an executive, which has been that I put a lot of pieces together behind the scenes in a very micro way that ultimately becomes macro at some point. But a lot of times there are a lot of people that are trying to steal your thunder. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not at all about look at me, shine a light, give me credit, I've realized that at times when I do something that I think is powerful, there needs to be more credit given to people that are painting those those murals that end up behind the stage. And I think that's something that has been important to me as a leader, which right. is that I give credit to the people who work for me and with me because it's a driver of who they become and it inspires them to, to keep going. I love how childhood stories can become principles for how you live your life. That's beautiful. Yeah, and your ability to recognize them later is really, really yeah. cool. I think also people want to feel acknowledged when they're in their purpose. And so I think a lot of that comes back to like, I I was totally aligned and in my purpose. And so if someone else steals my thunder, like I have a lot of uh, feelings about that because I was like in my... You were authentic. Yeah. And it's the people that that often do it that are clamoring to to get somewhere that they're not authentically deserved. And that's why it's not something that weighs on me or stresses me out at whatsoever. I'm very calm about it. But at the end of the day, I think it's important for me to carry that on for other people because I don't see it enough selflessly with some of the people that have climbed in our industries. I think part of that is also being a female in this industry, especially on the entrepreneurial side uh, where sometimes women are not seen as the brains behind the idea and so it's like actually that was me so I'm gonna need you to run that back and (laughs) most definitely true (laughs) you also have another great kind of learning moment from a rabbi at your bat mitzvah tell us about that and for those who might not know what a bat mitzvah is tell us what that means as well I think what it is most importantly as it relates to this story is it's a tradition of an accomplishment that everyone before us has accomplished. So it's just my grandparents, my parents, everyone had a bat mitzvah. So now's my turn to prove. Right. And you have to pass the tradition down. You don't want to be the weakest link and break the the thousands of years of heritage that uh, have come before you. Absolutely. So, well, I had no choice. I was having a bat mitzvah. And part of it is to learn an extensive Torah portion in Hebrew. And I did that like any good A student and type <laughs> A individual. I, I did, I learned every ounce of that Torah portion. And the night before my bat mitzvah, my family had the walkthrough and we went into the office of the rabbi. And right before we were about to leave and my bat mitzvah was the next morning, he said to me, whatever you do tonight when you go home, don't practice your Torah portion. And I kind of looked at him like, 
well, what do you mean? I'm so nervous. I have to do my best. I'm going to practice it up until eight in the morning when I have to show up here. He said, if you don't know it by now, you're not going to know it. And that was one of the most prolific lessons that I've ever learned. And I, I took it to heart that day and I never turned back. And that was that if I don't know something by the time I have to present it, I'm not going to know it. So the only way to know it is to backpedal enough that I'm so prepared that I just know material like the back of my hand. And and ultimately, I never have to practice for anything. So whether it comes to a speaking engagement or a meeting, I always feel like my methodology for learning is is just no, there's, there's no it. ceiling. Yeah. And <laughs> read every minute that you can and constantly fill yeah. yourself with so much knowledge that you never feel like you're behind. You always feel like you're ahead. And I think that is really important because it's allowed me to not stress myself out and not try to cram because I know yeah. it. All right, so let's, uh, Shara, let's talk a bit about a shift that you had in your life. So you were given an opportunity to play D1, D2 softball, but you decided to go down a different road. Tell us about that. Since I was 10, I wanted to make movies, and I was I watched every movie I ever made, and there was just something about the idea of a hero who was able to, with no ceiling, achieve any dream they wanted to, and to be able to just watch stories that invigorated me. And sports, to me, especially looking back, was a bit of a game, no pun intended. It was, I just wanted to master something, and once I got to the end of the road, I was not interested anymore. So, it, which is so indicative of who I've become. It's so much about the journey, and it's not about the destination for me whatsoever. And ultimately, I achieved a lot of what I think young athletes want to achieve: the ability to go to college and play sports. But ultimately, I realized I just was more interested in telling stories. I just always knew what I wanted to be, and it it wasn't to be an athlete. So this was kind of a pivotal moment, a big shift for you. I think in retrospect it was, but I guess it was more of a continuation and commitment to a journey that I knew I was on that was more powerful than any smaller sidestep. Okay, so I want to talk about um, another spark that you had. So I understand around 18 years old when you were applying for an internship with the Academy Award-winning film producer, Scott Rudin, your resume was chosen out of 600 people. Tell us how did you stand out? How did you get the gig? So this actually was a big shift for me. It ultimately led to, I think, a lot of what I went on to accomplish after that, which was that I knew that if I wanted to break into the film industry and have an opportunity, my parents had no connections. How it it transpired was I knew that in order to enter the film business, which was my initial step into entertainment, I had to find a way to do it myself. And so my path was, or my decision was to try to bring as big of names as I could of film producers on my resume because that's what I wanted to be. So I pinpointed Scott Rudin as one of the biggest ones and I picked up the phone and I called the internship coordinator and I straight for the top. I went straight for the top. (laughs) Why go any lower? You just knew that that had to be on your resume. Why? Because why shouldn't she? for the stars. Hold on. I want everyone to stop because this is a really smart strategy. You just think about what your resume has to say because the second it says that on there, that's it. It's going to open every door in the world for you. And it did. I so I made it my mission to get the biggest name I could. So I called Scott Rudin's office. I cold called and I said, do you, I want to send my resume over for an internship. And the internship coordinator said, okay, well, um, get in what line, year are you in college? <laughs> right. And I so excitedly was like, I'm a freshman. And she was like, well, let me tell you something. We get about 600 resumes a semester. So if you keep applying, by the time you're a senior, I'll have seen your resume three or four times. And I'm more likely to pull it out of the pile then. So I said, hell no. And I hung up the phone and I created a Bible of every movie that Scott Rudin had ever produced and why I love the movie. And I sent that over in a very collage style visual and I got a phone call from them the next day to interview for that position and that ultimately I got that internship the summer of my freshman year and it actually unlocked the door to every internship I had after that. I can imagine. (laughs) So tell us where did you go to college and what was your major? I went to Emerson in Boston and I double majored in television production and entertainment marketing and then I worked with all the film kids on short films so I basically did everything I possibly could. Ultimately, that led to my first big job in the film business, which was an assistant position to a producer named Mark Gordon. And this internship coordinator at one point said, you know, I just got a phone call from my friend who is the first assistant to Mark. She's leaving and 
she said she'd interview you, you're never going to get it, but I'm going to put you up for the interview so that you can have a chance to practice interviewing. So when you graduate college, hopefully you'll get a job. And five rounds later, I ended up getting that assistant position. And that's what launched my career in the movie business. Did any of these um, men or these companies that you um, interned for or worked for realize what a badass or a gem you were at the time? I think that yeah, I think Mark recognized it for sure. It, it He said it in various ways, some of which he said, you remind me of me. And at the time I was like, no, that's not a good thing. But he gave me a lot of opportunity. He saw me as somebody who was not going to sit in, a, in an assistant chair for long. And though I ha- had to prove to him that I would break down the walls and that I could do it, he was the first investor in my tech company and was my co-founder. And he ultimately showed me in many ways that He was incredibly supportive of who I had the potential to be, and I'll forever be grateful for that. I love that you just said that. I think you're the third woman on my podcast that has said that someone that they started with or interned with in the beginning ended up being an investor in their company or venture later on. So I think that is something really important for people to hear and listen to because those impressions you make, even when you're starting out, are so, so, so important. I always say, go get the job that's above you. And and if you're below me, come take my job. Because if you have the ability and the drive and you can, it's all yours. Because that means that you you are driven to go do that. And I think that Mark was one of those people that if you took an opportunity and you proved to him that you could do it, he was amazed by that. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people put a a hurdle in front of them and have a fear that they can't do something, that they need permission. And I think that it's about not asking for permission. Just do it. Totally. All right. So I understand that you um, hit a snag because you felt that when you were an assistant, you were um, treated very brutally. Can you tell us what happened? I think that the culture of assistance is unfortunate. I think that too often executives get so busy and it becomes all about them. And I think that ultimately it wasn't just me. It was everyone in Hollywood per se that was just faced with this brutal sort of deliverance of ego that I think as a young assistant, male or female, you are you just don't know how to handle. And when it's thrown at you, it's really, really difficult. And it comes out in ways that, that look ugly. And you take a lot of it personally. And I think that I'm so grateful of the opportunities to have not been treated as I believe that I should have been, because I think it just is a reminder to make sure I don't do that to other people. Mm-hmm. Is it just people's tone, how they talk to you, how they ask you to do things, how they respond if you make a mistake? Is mm-hmm. it, can you elaborate? I think it's ultimately that, that and we, we're all guilty of this, it's, it's that we want people to prove what we proved. And I think that you feel like, well, I paid my dues, so why shouldn't you? And it becomes this relationship of, an individual being incredibly successful and then somebody who in theory they think is not. And I think that that was something that was really, really difficult for me to swallow because yeah. even though I hadn't had the 30-year film career of, of or music career of some of the people that I worked for, that doesn't mean that I couldn't bring something to the table. And not everyone has to sweat as hard for it. Mm-hmm. Some people come in and they skip some steps and, and it doesn't mean that they haven't earned it in their own yeah. way. Did you ever feel like being treated poorly um, helped you or inspired you to rise up or did it just kind of keep you down? Yeah, I never got down by that. It it just made me think that I just didn't want to be that way. Yeah. So if anything, it formed me into somebody who I constantly take a second look like it you have to really 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 push me for me to get frustrated with someone that's working for me more because I've, I've made it a pro I made a promise to myself and made it a mission as an executive to be a better leader and a better mentor and if that means focusing stopping and saying I'm going to teach and I'm not going to get frustrated that's a hard thing to do and I, I really believe you cannot make the same mistake twice and right. so for me if you work for me or you work with me if you're making the same mistake twice I just don't have a lot of patience for it agreed and that's a challenge yeah <laughs> and I think that's the lesson to be learned is you know if you are in a position and you're hiring somebody whether they're smart, sharp, doesn't matter. They're going to make mistakes because they're learning. And it's what they do with those mistakes and how they learn from it. And, you know, and the fact that they can take responsibility and own it is what matters. And I think that is something that so many people need to learn. Yeah. Yeah. 
I can't learn without mistakes. I interned at Warner Records when I was in early college. And I remember there was a girl there who I was beneath her. And she asked, she was finished eating and she asked if I would throw her food away in the trash for her. And I was like, okay, yeah. And she was like, I want you to do it on the second floor because I don't want to have to smell it. Like that always sticks in my brain whenever I have anybody working under me that I like never want to be that. There you go. All right, so Shara, I love, love this next part. So you went from being an assistant, it seems, to making kind of a serious power move. Um, From there, and I quote, you architected and created the company's first digital department and developed web content. So tell us, how did you make a transition? How did that work? So this was about eight years ago, and it was before Netflix, Hulu, anything. There was no digital distribution. So we were spending our time developing feature films with the ultimate end goal of distributing them in theaters. But we knew weeks ahead that they were going to bomb because we could see the focus groups, yet we were pouring more marketing dollars in to try to reach more individuals that would show up and buy tickets. And ultimately, looking at the future of that seemed very, very grim. And so knowing that Mark um, had produced Grey's Anatomy and Criminal Minds and was prolific in in film as well, I saw it as an opportunity for us to develop what I viewed as the future of content, which would be to, to create short form, high quality content that could be distributed via phones. So where we are now. And ultimately, I said to Mark, we should create a digital division that can create short form content with the ultimate goal of driving bigger properties back to network television and and into our feature department. And Mark looked at me and said, is that Google? What are you talking about? And I said, let me launch a department and show you what I can create. And That was, I guess, another example of him giving me an opportunity because he believed that I could accomplish something. I guess if I set my mind to do something, I could do it. So ultimately, he, when I pitched him that, he was like, I'm in. So was it kind of like a fake it till you make it type of approach? Like you didn't really know what you were doing, but you had this great idea and you wanted to make it happen and he believed in you or... In retrospect, definitely a bit of that, though I don't think I viewed it that way. Mm. I think I viewed it as I have this idea and I'm going to stop at nothing to accomplish it. And you I'm were going fearless. To, and I why fearless. shouldn't I? Right. And I think I, I mean, I did that with a bit of confidence, but not in an arrogant way. So I think he wasn't put off. He saw that I was able to accomplish certain things that I set my mind to. And I think really that's what it's about. I I see a lot of young people today who just very arrogantly believe they can accomplish anything. And I think you have to have the you have to have the ability to research or teach yourself enough and figure out anything for somebody to trust that you're worth a go at trying to do what you say you're going to do. Right. Okay. And so if that wasn't enough. You decided to partner with your boss on a new website company called Intern Sushi. So this was a company I had originally started in college, which was built as a solution to when I came up wanting these amazing internships with big producers and had no connections. I wanted the ability to showcase who I was in a way other than the things I had accomplished because I was 17, 18 years old. What was I going to have on my resume that was going to make me stand out? The only thing that I was able to do was be creative to ultimately land that internship at Scott Rudin. And so I had started to write the business plan and raised a little bit of money in college, but ultimately ended up moving out to LA to start in the film business. So when I launched the digital division at the Mark Gordon company, ultimately Mark wanted to invest in companies and and look for things that we could incubate. Mark said, jokingly, Mark was like, what are we investing in? And I jokingly was like, well, if you're in a race to invest in something so bad, why don't you look at a company that I started in college called Intern Sushi? And Mark was a big fan of our internship program. And I sent him a 50-page business plan. And he... (laughs) On no big deal. He just whipped it up. (laughs) It was the one I had written in college. I kept it in my safe. And... I sent it over to him and he ultimately was like, I love this, let's do it. And he was like, I'm going to give you your initial seed fund and you can continue developing movies and run the digital department, but also go out and build intern sushi. And so I did. In your free time. (laughs) In my free time. So you built this company up and then you sold it. I built it up. Um, Interestingly enough, there's a really interesting story to where I am now with it, which was that... 
I built a beautiful site. My focus was to create something that was a LinkedIn essentially for Gen Y, which was the the leading mm-hmm. at the time. Millennials. Millennials. Yes. And when we launched it, I thought it was just so beautifully designed that everyone would come. Well, that's not the case. And you have to architect the chicken before the egg. And that's something I talk about with the companies I invest in now all the time. But ultimately, what happened was the music business got on it first. Coincidentally, labels, publishers, management companies, everyone got on the site. And a few weeks in, I started getting all this hate mail saying, we posted internships here, but no one's applied. Well, that's because I had no interns on the site. So in order to get music interns on the site, I said, well, I got to get an asset within the music business that will attract a large slew of interns. So I went to Interscope first and I met with their marketing department and I ultimately pitched them on a deal that would allow me to market one of their artists and offer an internship for the day that the site would manage that would deliver the top candidates and ultimately the manager and the artist could allow that intern to shadow for a day and if they wanted to hire them for longer. And that initial campaign, which was done with Zed and Interscope, ultimately was the launching pad for the growth of the intern side of my company. And so I had battled the chicken and the egg scenario with that. And then from there, it went on to build out significantly in other industries and on both sides. So I'm I'm kind of seeing a pattern. You You hit snags in your career and you just keep overcoming them. They almost inspire you to spark a new idea on how to overcome and fix it. And it pushes you to the next level. Yeah, it's interesting because I always wanted to be a film producer. And once when I was younger, I read that what a film producer actually does is they put out fires. Correct. And I kept that in, yeah, they're firemen. They're firemen. And what I saw and what Mark, frankly, taught me was that your ability to create something amazing is a formula of how many amazing people you can put around you. And then when they run into problems, you can be the fireman. And so I actually view myself as a fireman. Still, I constantly put out fires, but if you can put out more fires, then everything survives. And then you can go on to build on top of those foundations. Beautiful. So the name was eventually changed to Career Sushi, and it hosted more than 25,000 hiring companies and 1 million plus internship job candidates. And it placed over 25,000 interns in life-changing internships. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it went went on to do really cool things. And it's so funny because I was actually, before I came here, I was sitting with a incredibly young music executive who who interned for me at Intern Sushi, but then went on to get amazing internships in the music business from the site. And it's those stories that are really powerful. I'll find myself on conference calls and there'll be a young executive who at the end will just say something like, oh, I just wanted to say I got an internship on Intern Sushi. Then that led me to where I am today. And I think that's why we do what we do, right? Of course, of course. Okay, so where did you go from there? What was your plan after selling the company? Did you feel like, was it freeing? Did you feel like, wow, I've arrived, I've done something amazing, I'm gonna go on vacation for six months? No, I think I run. So I'm I'm a marathon runner and it's always, there's so many things that I was doing at every point in my career that were just a continuation of the thing before. And I was fascinated by the music business because I, like I said earlier, I wanted to be in the film industry because I love telling stories and I love creating heroes. And I think that that's what the music business does too. And within every song, there's a narrative. And I think that what I loved about the music business, and I, my dad is a musician and he works on the musical instrument side. And I have pictures of myself as a child biting my dad's electric guitar cord, which is dangerous. But <laughs> music was a part of my blood since I was born. And nice. I think it probably most naturally was going to be where I ended up. And even when I was in the film business, I was super focused on sync and, and scoring and everything that music did to bring those stories to life. And the relationships that I built in the music industry throughout Intern Sushi were just really organic mentors and were people that saw what I was doing, thought I was doing something left of center, and in varying ways just mentored me, whether it be in managing talent, whether it be in in business model questions, just things that I had come up against. And I just kept in touch with a lot of those people and ultimately got incoming calls from a bunch of them saying, what are you up to now? What can we do together? Let's start a project, come consult. And I ended up launching a new company and it was off of a song lyric that goes, turn it into something gold. And I thought that that was 
what I wanted to do was take things that a lot of people were fearful of or didn't know how to build and mold and and turn them into something gold. And that inspired me incredibly. I'm I look back and I'm the minute I heard that lyric, I knew what I was supposed to do next, which was take things that people were afraid of and make them beautiful. I I looked at it as I started managing artists and and songwriters and producers and I wanted to be able to understand what it took to take an artist from zero to a hundred and what publishing meant and what masters meant and what every side of the music business was so I could talk about it at the highest level. And so part of that company was an artist management company. Part of it was a consult, a creative consultancy. So I had a bunch of ad agencies and brand clients that I focused on sort of creative strategy and creative projects. And then a bunch of my clients were also record labels and and C-suite executives at publishing companies and managers directly that I came in and built brand activations for, that I built marketing activations for, that I just kind of beat a bunch of ideas over the head with to figure out what was next in music and tech. I wanted to use my understanding of of technology, of entrepreneurship, and be able to help break down and solve some of the problems in the music business because I got a very firsthand look at it while I was mentored by people in music, and it gave me a new view of what I could do in that mm-hmm. space. And I kind of made it my mission to work with the best people <laughs> and cl- find You're my like, way. Who's at the top of the list that I can the, call again? Who's at the top? And and I made it my mission to try to work with all of them. That's rad. So um, one of the people that I, that is my partner in Raisin Space is Zach Katz. And I ended up in Zach's office a couple years ago. And in sort of a consultancy style conversation of I brought him one of my artists and was like, I want to maybe sign one of my artists to you or should I come in and consult on some of your artists? And Zach said something to me that showed me who he is as a person. And at the time, was he at BMG? He was at, yeah, he was he running BMG at the running time. Running the BMG, right? Yeah. And he said, if I hire you to consult on one of my artists or I sign one of your artists and we just go break yet another artist, I'm not helping you reach your potential. And that was really interesting because I had worked with some really prolific people in the music business who who were really were really powerful and powerful to me. They really contributed to what I what I do now and they taught me a lot. But Zach said, not let me not think about what you can do for me and let me think about what I can do for you. And I think that that is so, so, so rare. And it was in that moment that we knew we were destined to accomplish something much bigger than just trying to break another artist. Right, right. because if both of you feel that way, that's a really good partnership long term. Exactly. And so that's what led us into ultimately partner with with Scooter and with Ripple on Raised in Space, which is which is now where I'm at, which is investing in music technology companies, guiding them with my experience as an entrepreneur. And also I still manage a couple artists and, and that's a big part of my way of keeping my foot in the industry. And, and it's a big part of also what Zach and I do every day, which is we work with managers, we work with record labels, we work with publishers. We are hyper, hyper focused at having the the relationships and the people that will adopt the companies that we will raise through Raised in Space. All right. So I want to touch on another um, snag that you hit in your life, and that was um, the death of your grandparents. Tell us uh, what happened. A true love story. So my grandmother passed away this past year, and then my grandfather, who was basically the patriarch and and king of our family and was a real player in who I am, he took me to my first football game. He taught me about football. He taught me about being a passionate sports fan, and every single Sunday I communicated with him about games and and he was a real driver of just general goodness and true 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 passion and to lose them in the same year was incredibly challenging because it's just one of those things that when you lose a piece of your heart you change as an individual and I think that that has definitely had a profound impact on me this year because it's just something that becomes at the forefront of your mind I'm so sorry for your loss yeah okay so I'm gonna switch gears completely if you weren't in the music business what would you do Um, I would definitely work in sports or more importantly, I would 
be an engineer for NASA. I'm obsessed with space. I'm obsessed with the unknown. It there, It's actually a coincidence that we named the company Raised in Space. But I think that just general engineering is kind of a lot of what I love. And that might have been a path that I would have taken had I not been so creative. How does somebody impress you in an interview? They have a point of view. I think that I interview a lot of people and I meet a lot of people and there are a lot of yes men and there are a lot of follow the trend and they recite things to me that they've seen. But I think that it's a lot harder to say something that's different and to have an opinion on something that's backed up by an ability to understand the larger picture of something. I also think that remembering and memory is is something that has really started to bother me about a lot of people because you're not paying attention if you're not remembering things that I have said to you or that someone else has said to you. And that's a big pet peeve of mine. Like I'll know information about people that come in to interview with me that someone else told me and I'll bring it up to them and they don't even remember it. What is your actionable advice for those listening on how to make it in the music industry? Do it. And don't ask for someone to let you have an opportunity to do something. I think the music business, we would all agree, everyone in it, that we need entrepreneurs and managers are the future of record labels because they are taking on the burden of having to accomplish things in order to get a paycheck. And if you have that mindset, you will experiment and you will try. And I think trying is is the battle. Beautiful. So you are on Forbes 30 under 30 list. What did that feel like when you made that list? I think it felt like a tremendous um, amount of credit that I was given for some of the things that I had done. And so it more gave me an opportunity to be around like-minded individuals that would continue to push, that would continue to start new companies. And so if anything, it was less of a title and it's more a inclusive opportunity for more. I can honestly say after sitting here with you for the last hour that um, you truly kind of embody and um, are the spirit of this idea of raised in space. The way you think, um, Thank you. your ideas, the way you push, the way you make it happen. And I'm so, so excited to see the future. Um, you know, you are really someone who inspires me. And you know, again, there's different kinds of people that mentor and inspire others. And there's nothing more exciting to me than being inspired by somebody younger than me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just in this time together today, I've learned so much from you. And I just really want to thank you for being here, taking time. You're so, so busy, clearly. <laughs> and um, I hope that everyone listening really follows what you do. And I can't wait to see what you do in the next 10 years. Thank yeah, you. I feel like I just got a master class right now. I know, right? It's kind of incredible. <laughs> you. I mean, you're, a lot. you're really, really incredible. So thank you for being here. I know um, Asia has a couple of questions that she sure. wants to jump in with as well. So I'm going to let her do that. One thing that I would like to ask you that I find sometimes working in the entertainment industry is um, do you feel that you are given as much benefit of, of the doubt as some of your male counterparts in terms of when you're proposing something or when you are um, bringing up an idea that people are automatically willing to and ready to hear what you have to say or you have to sort of break through something first in order to then begin at that point? A lot of needing to break through. But to me, that when I have more to prove, I do more to prove it. And I think that But that's me and that's not everyone. And so I think that people will tell me stories like, oh, this new executive at at this record label, she's not really liked by people. And I say, is that her fault or is that the people's fault that Mm -hmm. are putting a political view of the fact that she's aligned with somebody or she has spoken out to be a negative when we literally are just trying to battle what we have to battle to overcome men. And I think that that's an unfortunate challenge where sometimes it's it's almost impossible to break through. But I think that's why it's important for you and I to keep doing what we're doing and keep offering opportunity for young women and, and show them a path, like the people that have come before us. Right, which kind of leads into my next question, which is are there any sort of avenues or organizations that you're involved with that help 
kind of provide that mentorship or um, opportunity for younger people that are trying to enter the field, women in particular, but you know, anybody deserving who's a hard worker? So I don't think they're enough, and that's why I'm starting one. So Raised in Space is creating a women in music program that we are architecting now. I need to now. be involved in that somehow. It's really important, and, and there are so Scooter works with so many incredible women within his own organization, mm-hmm. and Zach has been such a proponent of women, unlike many men in the industry and so he and I have been talking about what we want to do whether it be an event a structured program we're really focused on the need for mentors in music yeah because I think a lot of um one thing that I work on is I'm an ambassador for this uh program called Rock and Roll Camp for Girls which is an all-female run um music camp for girls but it's really it's really like a social justice organization via music education so we we run these camps where we teach songwriting and there's instrument instruction there's also self-defense class awesome there's a social media literacy class because they're like 12 and entering instagram world and you know and that's terrifying it's terrifying teaching them about how that works also we have like a different um, panelists that come in and speak with them. But I think part of the reason why I feel so passionate about that is because it's really hard to do something if you don't ever see that modeled by anyone. Yep. So there are people like, it sounds like you are one of these people that's like, I don't see anyone modeling this thing that I want to do, but screw it. Everyone out of my way, I, I'm going to do, I'm going to figure this out. But I, I also think that there's some people that really need to see people ahead of them leading the way, paving the way. Um, even if it's not exactly in the way that they want to do it, but sort of ahead of them showing the direction. And that's why I think that what I talk about more than creating a program is women supporting women on an everyday basis. And that's why I do everything in my power when I see someone doing something amazing, whether I know them or not, going out of my way to send a note to just say, I love what you did or I read this about you because it's really important women cannot be negative and cannot be competitive and cannot be defensive against other women. We have to team up. Yes. It's the only way to make sure that other women have a chance. Right. Because we're already facing, there's already backlash, so we have to be our own teammates. And I get emails that I respond to faster than I respond to some of my daily business emails. When I see a young woman who emails me and says, oh, I'm starting a business or I, I want to have a general meeting with you just to get your advice, whether I can ultimately take that meeting or not, I respond back and just say, truthfully, like, look, my schedule is busy, but keep doing what you're doing and keep sending me emails and keep checking in. Along my journey, I had people that reminded me that you just have to keep going. And so I'll do anything I can to contribute, even if it's in a a little way. When you're doing work that is service, people want to serve you. Mm -hmm. And that whenever I speak with young people, I always say like, what are you, what are you offering? Right. Because then people, everyone wants to help you when you're the guy that helps everyone all the time. Definitely. You know, don't always just ask for things. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I think that that concludes this episode of She Dynasty. I clearly have two incredible power women sitting next to me. So thank you both for being here today. And I'm super excited to see um, what the future holds for both of you. So thank you. Thank Thank you.